And it's, it's always good when we come together to realize, you know, even if you're here for the first time, uh, don't feel shy to just ask questions or even, you know, grab a cup of coffee afterwards or meet us at the, there's a little wooden wall in the corner over there. And so after the service, I'll be hanging around there. If you're new and want to just touch base, you're very welcome to do so. Um, so my name is Jens, I'm the curate here in, in St. Saviour's and uh, I'm supposed to talk tonight on the one thing. Now what is the one thing? That's up to everyone who's preaching in the series and I've picked one. <laughs> and, and the one thing I've picked is I wanted to talk on Jesus' teaching on prayer. Um, you know, it's interesting when God teaches on how to talk to God, I think. And so I wanted to chat about that a little bit. And, you know, it's quite interesting when, when you look at Jesus' teaching on prayer because there's not that much in the New Testament as you might have thought there was. You know, he's not talking constantly about this subject. But when he talks about it, I think he talks about it in a way that is slightly different to what we may, may perceive prayer to be. So, you know, you won't find your shopping lists before God and that sort of stuff, you know. But some other things. So, Matthew chapter 6. I'm just doing the reading from there, uh, verse 5 to 14. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to a time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Interesting way of speaking. At another time, you know, Jesus was withdrawing to pray, and then his disciples asked him, seeing him finish his prayer, can you teach us how to pray? And in a similar fashion, he talks them through the Our Father prayer. And it's interesting to me that Jesus, the Son of God, has need to withdraw in prayer. Now, it reminds me a little bit about high-altitude climbing. If, I don't know whether you are into that sort of thing. Have you climbed Everest? No? <laughs> Nobody here who's done that? Are you a high-altitude doctor into medicine that way? No? Good. So anything I say is probably right then. <laughs> um, but... One picture really was shocking this, this year in, in the news. I don't know whether you've seen it. There was a queue up Hillary Step 
on Everest, which is quite up in the death zone. It's called the death zone because up at, uh, you know, when you're up at a certain altitude, your body starts to die and you only have a short window, a short amount of time that you can afford to be in the death zone because your muscle, I think, reduces and um, you know, all sorts of stuff goes on in your body. And uh, you know, even if you're sucking oxygen, it's not so easy to live in that area. That's why it's called the death zone, little hint. But anyway, so people were queuing in the death zone at the Hillary step because too many people were rushing to go up to the mountain and to climb and ascend to the top. And obviously too many people had received visa or whatever in, a, in order to do that. And so when there's a queue of 100 people or so trying to get to the top, you have only a short amount of time and you know the clock is ticking. And when you're in the middle of the queue, it's not so easy to turn around and squeeze past everybody else, you know, with sheer drops on all sides and, and all of that. So being in the death zone is not good. And, you know, but it helps to have oxygen. It really does. Because you're sucking in this fresh air and, you know, your lungs expand and your, your body cells receive fresh oxygen and your, your mind gets supplied with all that it needs in that sense. And it seems to me that Jesus is moving off to pray because he understood that kind of dynamic. If you will, living in this world and under the dynamics of this world is a bit like living in the death zone, all right? There's something about this world, the principles that we have put into place and the way we treat each other uh, that really we need to detox from, not just from time to time, but on a continual basis. And he understood his need to detox from the pattern of desire which threatened to run him. Now, I'm drawing in my sermon today largely on the work of René Girard and a theologian called James Allison, who's taken you know, the thought of Girard, who, who was an anthropologist, um, and uh, you know, has quite some interesting things to say about how we form identity. And, and the theologian James Allison has put that into the field of theology and turned it into some very useful stuff. And I'm drawing on his work here. So uh, just to say that if you're interested in looking that up further. Um, now, René Girard talks about, a little bit about this toxic environment that we live in. Um, so you see, we form our identity through the desires and we live through the desire of another person. So quite simple, if you're in kindergarten and you see lots of toys around you and everything is happy and peaceful and hunky-dory and then suddenly one kid goes from this corner to that corner, picks up a toy and is excited about it. Now that toy wasn't interesting until that boy or girl was excited about it and suddenly somebody else thinks, I want this too. And then, you know, the pulling and the pushing and, you know, oh, let me play, no, no, I want it. And so he calls that mimetic desire. It's kind of, I'm copying the desire that you have. And that does something to me, you know? I define myself through that desire. So it's all right if there are enough toys and if there are enough of the same, there's no fight. But if there's only one thing, you know, what can you do? Either you fight about it or you find a scapegoat that you unite against or you kill the person. Quite simple. But that's René Girard in, a, in, a, in one sentence, all right? <laughs> and, and so, but there are these patterns of desire where where we kind of fall victim because somebody else desires something we have and then they push us around and we feel 
like offended and then we go through life and things aren't good and we live under that pressure. And these are the patterns uh, that threaten to run all of us because there's something quite deep within us that wants to be approved of. We want to be seen. We want to be seen through something. And if certainly in our you know, capitalist society, we have things and we want to be seen by them. Having a big house, a big car, whatever it is, you know, you love to have. And obviously, hopefully, other people see you in your lovely Austin Martin, you know, as you turn the ignition and have that roaring sound in it. So it's nice to be seen. And this longing for approval and reward system is not something inherently wrong. It's something, I think, that God has laid in, inside of us, and it's, it's something good. There is part of it that is good. Because, you know, otherwise we would be all self-starting, self-contained little islands looking around the place. It's not too infantile to be wanted to be approved of. But on the contrary, he takes it for granted that we desperately need approval. And the question is, whose approval is going to run your life? That is the big question. And when Jesus withdraws into the chamber or saying to, to us, you know, look, don't pray like, you know, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. See that approval system in place? That's the reason why they do what they do. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. What is their reward? Their reward is the little like button at Facebook, you know? Lovely, doing a great job, superb. Doesn't last very long. That's why I have to do it again tomorrow, you know? And so we get into this rut of trying to gain approval. And this constant approval is, is something we get addicted to. And the trouble about seeking approval of the social other is that you will get it, writes Alison. That is the trouble about it. You will get approval from others and it makes you want more of it. And then you do all sorts of theatrics just to get the approval of the person next to you. And sometimes, of course, you're not getting the approval and, you know, the bad stickers are even worse. And because of that, in the end, you will be selling yourself short. And Jesus talks about this. He says, whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, belonging to the Father and approval go together. Know who you belong to. And then God invites you into this windowless larder of a room. That's what Jesus is talking about. You know, the kind of food corner somewhere in your house, under the stairs? That's the kind of room he's talking about here. Nobody can see in and can approve of you. And you can't see out and be kind of taken on a, on a ride of the search for approval. Jesus is urging us to receive ourself, not from the social other, from your friends or from somebody down the road or from your work colleagues or from the people at church. Jesus is inviting you to receive yourself and your identity from your creator who lives outside of this structure, of this 
tit for tat, this you did that and I do this now and you know, that kind of dynamic. He lives outside of that death zone. He lives outside of that stuff where people get starved just to be approved of. Just reading this quote from Alison. He's saying, you're addicted to being who you are in the eyes of your adoring public or your execrating public. You know, two, two publics here. The crowd that says, cheers you on and says, great, well done, and the crowd that boos you, you know, and says, ooh, go home, you loser, you know. But you're b both addicted to both, strangely enough. It doesn't matter which, since crowd love and crowd hate give identity in just the same dangerous way. So go into a place where you are forcibly in detox from the regard of those who give you identity so that your father, who alone is not part of that give and take, can have a chance to call your identity into being. Hear that truth in that. Jesus is not just talking about general hypocrisy. I think he's talking deeply to our identity and inviting us to spend time under the gaze of a loving father who lives outside the death zone. So prayer is not so much about being heard, for your father knows already what you need, you know, before you even ask him. So what is it about then? You may say to me, but doesn't Jesus talk in Luke 18 about a widow who constantly pestered this unjust judge who just wanted justice done? Let me just turn to that. Let's have a look at that in, in Luke 18. Another scripture where Jesus talks about prayer. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I fear that sometimes we might have misunderstood this text and misread it in a way that it kind of likens God to the unjust judge. And we think, yes, you have to keep banging on God's door until he opens up and finally gives in to your nagging. But that's not what Jesus is saying here at all. He's saying if the unjust judge even gives in, you know, how much more... Will God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? God is for you. Will he delay long in helping them? Of course not. 
God's not letting you dangle there and in prayer and just, but what is actually happening? Is, is God sort of answering prayer after the hundredth time of asking? No, that's not the point. The point is, in my opinion, in the last sentence, and yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The point of the prayer time is that your faith is built, your trust is built, because you are under the gaze of a loving Father, and you are changed, and you are being given a heart, and that heart is being expanded, because it's the faith in the end that you take with you. It's not the answer to prayer that you kind of nail at the wall in heaven. It's the faith that's growing. It's the change in you that happens. It's the heart that you're being given. It's your identity that grows. Now, if we go back to Matthew, of course, Jesus, you know, he is praying and he's in this place of detox every once in a while, quite often, quite regularly. And then he talks about you know, what this prayer looks like. And he says, you know, please, don't just heap phrase upon phrase upon phrase like the Gentiles do, and they bubble and they repeat the same thing over and over again, you know, as if they would be heard because of this kind of work that they're doing. That's not the point of it. That's not prayer. Pray then this way. And there are three parts to this prayer, really. Very Anglican parts, I must say. Because God, after all, is Anglican, if you... Don't know that? <laughs> uh, just a joke, by the way, <clears throat> for those who are listening on tape. <laughs> anyway, so it starts with a preparation. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Then comes the word of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where do we read about that? Of course, in his word. And then come the prayers. Give us. What? give us, what does that make us? If we pray give us, it makes us receive us, not grasp us. We're not grabbing for life like everyone else. We're not running around with our elbows out, trying to kick everyone out. We're not trying to tread on people in order to step up. But we are people who are receiving. And if you're not grabbing for life, man, you can be generous, you know, because you don't fear that you're dying if you're giving you're not fearing that you suddenly stand there poor because you've passed something on. We say, forgive us. And what makes that of us? It makes us relate us. Suddenly, you know, our relationships are being healed up. And forgiveness brings us freedom. I'll come to that in a minute. And then keep us. That's the last kind of prayer in that. It makes us children. Who, whose deep desire is, of course, uh, the one of safety, you know. So keep us safe. And then Jesus talks about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a huge part of prayer. It's where you remain free. And God is giving here such a gift to, to us. You see, the cross is not just simply something that happened 2,000 years ago. The cross is God's character. And that's why he invites us as his disciples to deny ourselves, to live a cruciform character. You know self-denial, what that is? It's kind of, <laughs> it's not the 
most comfortable thing, you know. But it is so freeing. If you're denying yourself, you suddenly get free of yourself. And we moan and groan on the way to it. And a friend of mine used to say, stop dying so loudly. And, uh, you know, it really helps to understand that denying self brings this freedom. So he offers us this recipe for freedom. Do not allow yourself to be run by those who do you evil. That's basically it. God is not bound by that. God has enemies, they come against him. God will not get offended. And he will stay on the cross and say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And, you know, Girard calls that the intelligent victim. Interesting, isn't it? So victim may be, but an intelligent one. Because that victim on the cross forgives and stays free. And this involves a refusal of negative, you know, you did this and therefore I do that back to you. And a learning to move from the heart towards them in a way which has nothing to do with what they have done to you. That's how God moves towards this world. He lets the sun go and, you know, up over the good and the evil every day. He approaches the whole world, everybody the same, with his amazing open arms. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. The rationale for praying for those who persecute you is set out clearly. It is so as to become part of the pattern of desire for the other, other, for God, who is almighty, who is not part of the tit for tat, the good and evil and the social, of the social other, but is entirely outside of it. He isn't run by rivalry. You see, God lives outside of that death zone that I've been talking about, and therefore spending time with him is entirely freeing. So what does that look like then? To be looked at by our Father in heaven, in the secret place, in that chamber under the stairs where nobody can look in, you know? What does it look like to be looked at by the one who is deathless. Just imagine, you know, somebody who lives outside of the parameter and the reality and the limit and the circumscription of death. Somebody who lives entirely away from that dynamic of having to fear death. The book of Hebrews puts it very succinctly. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held to slavery by the fear of death. Think about what humanity does only because they're so afraid of losing out. I mean, just put on reality TV and you have it right there, entertaining, or not so as it may be. The fear of death may drive you to push others aside, may drive you to selfish action, may drive you to divorce, may drive you just to even kill people. 
I mean not you, but you know, the you, the we, the, the humanity. And we do all sorts of stuff, sometimes very subtle things, only because we fear we're losing out. But for God, death is not a problem, you see? And that's why Jesus stayed on the cross, identifying with all the suffering that humanity can throw at him and showing and demonstrating that death is not the end because resurrection day is coming. Last page, just for you to know where we're going. Secondly, what does it mean to be looked at through the eyes that only know abundance? What does it look like? To be looked at by the one that, you know, just makes something, creates and has always more. You know, we are taught, grab what you can before it all runs out. You know, Black Friday kind of mentality. One TV isn't enough, I need another one and another one. And you know how you learn to drive those trolleys at the shin of the people that oppose you and just to, in order to grab what they have. I mean, those scenes are unbelievable. But yet, that reve it reveals a kind of mentality of people who live in a zone that feel like scarcity is something that is all around us and we are motivated by, and therefore we have to hang on for dear life to all that we have got. You know the saying, there's no free meal at the end of the universe. Well, I've got news for you. There's a whole wedding banquet waiting. <laughs> but if you don't spend time in the chamber under the gaze of the loving king who's putting out this spread for you, and if you don't have the vision in front of you that there's a wedding feast waiting for you, well, how can you then go out and share your stuff with other people? Because you will be always driven and held back by the fear that there won't be enough. Thirdly, and there are four points, if you're counting. What does it look like to spend time in the regard of one for whom daring and adventure, not fear and caution, underlie the whole project of creation? You know that God has created the whole universe with a huge risk factor. What if his creation runs a different way and course than he designed it? And, you know, looking back, we can now say, oops, that has happened. <laughs> you know, the Bible is very clear. Our lives show it. We have missed the target. We have missed the mark several times. The Bible calls it sin, missing the mark. And I think we all can talk about that in our lives and relationships. Yes, we have not really run the course the way we should have done. And no matter how much we might want to cover that up, it's still nagging at us and our soul suffers under it. But God is daring and adventurous and he's got a plan of putting things right. He's called the savior of the world, hence our church calling Saint Saviors. <laughs> it's a great name because what we're proclaiming every time when you say I go to Saint Saviors is that actually God is adventurous and daring and even though his creation took a different turn, He's not flustered by that, but he's got a plan, and he's going to bring it right back into his order. He's not, uh, you know, 
shaken by the fact. And this is true adventurism, isn't it? Is that a word, adventurism? If not, I just made it up. <laughs> Write it down. So he's an adventurer. He likes to try things out and put things, even though there might be a risk involved. And what does it look like to spend time under the gaze of the one who is daring and adventurous? Will that keep you in your little box, on your little track, never trying anything, even though you might fail? You know, failure for God is not a bad, you know, bad word. <laughs> if something goes wrong in your life, he's not going to go, oh my goodness. How am I going to fix this thing, you know? And so, you know, we don't need to cover up our failure on our Facebook page and just show the exciting stuff. But what about if we would put all the stuff on it that we tried and where we failed at, you know? You know the kind of, I, I suppose people do that. They're fail videos, aren't they? You know, you try to roll on your scooter and you fumble and stumble. I tell you, I failed exiting the tube in Frankfurt one day, I was leaning on, on the button where the doors open and the, the, the subway was driving into the station. I was leaning on it. I had this little plastic briefcase. I was going to school. I was about 12 years old and I was traveling. And, and so suddenly the door opened earlier than it should have done. And the, the train was still driving into the tube station. I thought, oh yeah, I jump out, you know, in true style. I stumbled completely, landed on my plastic suitcase, which slid along the whole platform with me on it. Then I got up and walked off, you know, <laughs> trying to cover up my failure. So sometimes it works. I'm not sure it looked so stylish. So anyway, but what does it look like to spend time with God who's just there and looking at us and speaking to us, look, I've made you adventurous too, and you can dare, and you can try things, and even if they're not working out, well done for trying. And what if you now grow in faith that I enable you to do the things that I call you to? And fourth, what is it like to sit in a regard which is bellowing at us something out of nothing? You know that word, something out of nothing? So ring, ring a bell, Bible somewhere, New Testament, Romans <laughs> chapter 4, verse 17. Of course, I've written it down so I know. And, you know, Paul is talking about in the presence of God in whom Abraham believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What if God can make things out of nothing. You know, you grow up with the saying, well, out of nothing comes nothing. That's not true. The Bible says, you know, God creates things out of nothing. And if you're sitting in the presence of the one who creates stuff out of nothing, think about the possibilities that gives you as a person, but also, what does that mean? If you can say, my father can do stuff out of nothing. You know how you, I mean, I, I took my, when, when my kids grew up in Germany, you have kindergarten from quite a young age on, and I took my son to kindergarten one morning, and there was this boy, and he said, uh, my dad, he's got a power drill. And then the other kid said, but my dad has got two power drills. And the other one says, but 
my dad has got a Bosch. Now, Bosch is a very good German make of a power drill, in case you didn't know. <laughs> so, you see, you can brag about your dad. My dad can do stuff out of nothing. And that's quite something to say, especially if you're in a situation where things seem impossible. God thrills to do things out of nothing. Just imagine politics, where the politicians believed in a father that could do things out of nothing. What would do that to our Brexit process? I wonder. <laughs> anyway, we don't want to go into that tonight. So, deathlessness, abundance, adventure, daring, something out of nothing. I mean, you could add to this, think on it. Think about the attributes of God who invites you into his chamber. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that we can spend time tonight even in that presence of the one who is deathless, who knows abundance, who is adventurous, and who creates stuff out of nothing, who is almighty, who is not flustered or fearful. Thank you, Lord, that you live outside of the kind of structures of you did that and therefore I do this. Thank you that you're not offended. Thank you that you don't make us stumble and that you don't stumble over us. And Lord, I pray that you help us to discover what it means to live in your presence, to be seen by you, to spend time each day just withdrawing even if it's for a little while, to be seen and gazed upon, to gain our approval by the one who is so different from anyone in this world. And as you look at us, Father, I pray that you deeply implant in our hearts the words you spoke over Jesus. This is my beloved son. And he's saying the same thing to you. You are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And what if those words suddenly take root in our heart and as we venture out into this world and see the kind of dynamics that try to suck us in, that try to make us king at the wrong time, maybe then we can flee those temptations like Jesus did after the multiplication of the bread. And he withdrew as they tried to crown him. And he withdrew into a quiet corner somewhere to pray, to receive your approval and not theirs. What freedom on display. Lord, help us. Amen.